Are you sitting quite comfortably? Then I'll begin. Hey kids, comics! Comic books. An art form early alive. We can rebuild them. We have the technology. With digital downloads and bookstore penetration, which sounds a bit rude, we can make them better than they were before. Better, stronger, faster. Here are your hosts, Andrew and Michael Leyland. Hello, everybody. Hello, everyone. And welcome back to your friends in the north. Can I be Daniel Craig? You can, if you like. And you can be Christopher Eccleston. Are you okay, yeah? You've never seen our friends in the north. I, I'm not. James Bond before he was James Bond, the doctor before he was the doctor. Okay. Pretty cool. So, basically, that hypothesis that people have that James Bond is, in fact, a time lord totally, could be totally right. works, yeah. doesn't it? Because they have existed in the same continuum, mm-hmm. as it were. Not to be confused with Continuum, which is also a time travel uh, television series. Okay. But has Rachel Nichols in it, who's um, lovely. I'm sure she is. She is. She's adorable. Anyway, welcome to Hey Kids Comics. Welcome back to the show. Our show. Our show. This show. Um, we've not been watching anything this week. No. I don't get all the hate for Amazing Spider-Man 2. I didn't think it was any worse than any number of other films that have come out. It was nowhere near as bad as Spider-Man 3. Do you not think? No. I didn't think it was anywhere near as bad as Amazing Spider-Man. <laughs> I thought it was much better than the first one. <laughs> but that, that's just me. A good costume right. goes a long way to appeasing me, doesn't it? See, if you're going to rank them, Spider-Man 3. They were a bit rank. Spider-Man 1. Alright. Spider-Man 2. Amazing yeah. Spider-Man 2 and 1. So Amazing Spider-Man 2 is your top one? Or Amazing Spider-Man 1. The Amazing Spider-Man 1s are better than the adjectiveless ones. You think? Yeah. See, if I was going to rank them, mine would be Spider-Man 1. Okay. Is this worst to good? That's the best. Right, okay. Best to to not best. Right. So Spider-Man 1. Right. Spider-Man 2, Amazing Spider-Man 2, Joint Second. Oh, really? Yeah. You genuinely preferred Spider-Man 3? Uh, no, because Spider-Man 3 is coming underneath, isn't it? Spider-Man yeah, 3, yeah. and then Amazing Spider-Man. Really? Yeah, that's how I would rank really? them. Really? Yeah, 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 I think so. My problem with them is Spider-Man 2 is a good all-rounder, so it's a solid all-round movie. So basically what you're saying is Spider-Man 2 is the Superman 2 of the Spider-Man films. It's yeah. a film that everyone can watch, irrespective of whether they're like superheroes or don't like superheroes or whatever it's just that good film yeah. it's the Star Trek to the Wrath of Khan of the Spider-Man films yeah. you don't even have to like Star Trek to like the Wrath of Khan yeah but the yeah. first adjectiveless is a better Peter a better Spider-Man film than it is a Peter Parker film because I don't like the Peter Parker bits they're all dull getting the costume already <laughs> the third Spider-Man movie is just crap all around in my humble opinion. You're not right. Opinion, you know, no, I don't, it is, I don't think Spider-Man 3 is as bad as that. At the end where, where he finds out Sandman killed Uncle Ben and he yes. just lets him go anyway. I would agree that it needs some editing, but I watched it not that long ago. I watched it over Christmas. Yeah, I think after editing it would just be a polished turd. No, well, yeah. 
for at least but the there are some snips that you could make to it that would make it a better film and one of the edits that I was mentally doing it's, as it's I was Kristen watching Dulles. the film well it was cutting her out yeah but was cutting completely all of the Sandman backstory yeah. you just have him be a bad guy and it works perfectly well yeah and you don't need any of that Uncle Ben grafted crap onto it it, it works just as well without that because mm. I actually thought the Venom stuff was actually quite good yeah I liked the Venom stuff even if they did seem to be adapting the cartoon series rather than the comics. Remember, in the comics, at no point did the Venom symbiote make Peter Parker go insane and be evil. Yeah. It just made him tired all the time. That's an invention of the cartoon show. Oh, yeah, because didn't it do stuff to him whilst he was asleep? Yeah, whilst he was asleep, the costume was going off, bouncing around over New York, and Peter Parker was suddenly like, why am I so tired all the time? Yeah. But he didn't make him bad, which... The film is... That's the way... That's my only problem with the film, really. Why did they not use the proper black and white costume? Why? Uh, what was wrong with that, that they couldn't do that properly? Because they need to make Spider-Man yeah. all dark. Dark and moody. Yeah. yeah. Well, With his you know. emo hair. And he's dancing. Yeah. Don't forget his funky dancing. funky dancing was the best bit of the film. I'd have cut that out. Would you? Watching it mentally, I'd have cut that. Oh, yeah, it's, it's quite a bad scene, but... Mm. You're just like, laughing at it and... The rest of it is so bad you can't laugh at it. You need that bit to save it. But to get back on topic, <laughs> I don't understand why Amazing Spider-Man 2 is getting so much hate. I can understand people being ambivalent to it. Yeah. I can understand people being, is that right? You know? But I can't understand the hate. It's not that bad. It's not, you know, red-brown Captain America bad. Yeah. Or Matt Salinger Captain America bad. It's not 70s TV Spider-Man bad. I actually thought it was a pretty engaging film with minor caveats. My problem with it is I don't understand how the studio could ever have thought that releasing a movie that had that as its ending was ever going to be the feel-good movie of the summer. By definition, it's the dark chapter, isn't it? Because of the ending. And then the ending, which feels a bit... Maybe a little bit too sudden. Yeah. What was needed to... And it's like... It's it's the Empire Strikes Back of the Spider-Man films. Yeah. In terms of it's a downer ending, for the most part. But Empire is the least highest grossing of the Star Wars movies, I think. Despite generally being held up as being yeah. the best of the Star Wars movies. Yeah. So, I, I think history will judge Amazing Spider-Man 2 better than it is currently being judged. Whether it's suffering the backlash of such an early reboot, mm. which, again, I, I don't understand why they rebooted it, but instead of just doing the James Bond thing yeah. and carrying on in some way, or rewriting it slightly, or whether it's just suffering from the fact that Captain America Winter Soldier was just so damn good that this hasn't measured up. But I don't understand, like, 36 46% on Rotten Tomatoes. It's not that bad. Yeah. So, I don't understand that. I'm, I, I can't wrap my head around it. Maybe when the third one comes out, it really will be The Empire Strikes Back, because the third one will be just as bad as Return of the Jedi. <laughs> Get out! <laughs> right now, there's no wrong with a bit of yub-nub. <laughs> Is that what we're calling That's it now? That's what we're calling it. That's the title of the episode. <laughs> no wrong with a bit of yub-nub. <laughs> Round back of the bike show. Yes. Should we do some emails? Yes, okay. okay. Is that what else we're calling it? That's what else we're calling it, yeah. Let's do some emails. <laughs> Our first email is the mighty Chris Franklin. Hello, Chris. The hero wore red. 
is the subject header. Hello, Leyland's Catching up by commenting on the last two Hey Kids. As I said in previous DD missives, I was never a huge follower of the character, but I do recall reading my friend's copies of The Miller Run. I really need to reread these. Issue 200 is a very compelling cover, and even in today's ultraviolet mainstream comics, it would stand out on the shelves. I can't say I've ever seen it before, which is a shame. That is a shame. It's a great cover. Mm. You don't remember it, do you? Which one? Issue 200. Daredevil. Batman. Batman. <laughs> Daredevil. Right. Wanting to be Batman. Kicking the crap out of Bullseye. Bullseye lies on the floor. Net broke. Like Spider-Man just webbed him. Oh, uh, the burn one. Yeah. Right. Good enough. Yes. I liked it too. Not sure about the whole Beyonder issue though. It does sound better than about anything else to do with Secret Wars. But that's not saying much. This must have been about two seconds before O'Neill jumped ship to DC to edit the Batman titles. Uh, my understanding of, since we did that show is that Jim Shooter significantly rewrote big chunks of that Daredevil issue. Right. Which may be one of the reasons Denny Neal went by to Batman. <laughs> Maybe they didn't get on. I don't know. Now on to your Cap Winter Soldier Flash episode. First off, loved the Winter Soldier. Definitely now my second favourite solo Marvel film after Captain America The First Avenger. Ooh, good man. I like people that like Captain America the best of all. Because so it's agreeing with me. His number one favourite is Captain America and yeah. his number two favourite of all the Marvel villains yeah. is Captain I, I can go with that. I mean, I'm willing to sit back and let Captain America Winter Soldier come out on DVD and watch it a few more times before I ultimately decide its its position in the pecking order. Right. But certainly, I, Captain America's my favourite of the Marvel movies, as I've said many times before. It's a vote with Iron Man. Yeah. Uh, Iron Man's not coming down for me. Is it not? It's not. Is Iron Man your, your boss one? Yeah. All right, fair enough. I actually liked First Avenger better than The Avengers, but I'm odd that way. I've rarely seen such a dense, story-packed film play so well, never skimping on character or action. Just a great package all the way around, and it definitely shook up the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So many directions to go in now. I hope Marvel backs a huge dump truck full of money to Chris Evans' house and keeps him on board for another ten years at least. As long as he stays in character, I'd watch him read a phone book for two hours. He just nails Cap. Mackie's Falcon was a great recreation of the character. I really liked them parlaying Sam's old social worker job into a veteran helping returning vets deal with the post-traumatic stress disorder, and the way they worked in his wings was brilliant and didn't slow the story down like it could have. I don't think we disagree with Chris, though. I loved Cap, too. Thought it was fantastic. Flash Rebirth. <sighs> I like Barry better dead. And that's not to say I don't like Barry Allen. I first started reading The Flash regularly right around the time Carmine Infantino came back in the early 80s, a year or so before the whole murder of Zoom trial of The Flash began. I liked Barry's character a great deal, but that trial storyline was interminably long. It just wouldn't end. And then they did the mercy killing in Crisis, and in doing so made Barry the patron saint of the DCU. Wally slowly grew into a decent character until Wade made him one, and then, as Wade had planned, I never wanted Barry to return again. Wade's run got repetitive, but overall was a great ride, and Johns did some great stuff on the title, although you could see him developing the darker DC universe even then. Only Dan Didier wanted Barry back. Heck, at first he didn't know what he wanted, giving Bart the costume for a misled run and then giving it back to Wally, only to finally have Barry return. I gave Rebirth a few issues, but I just couldn't get into it. The murder of Barry's mother was unnecessary in and of itself. I know it was all a plot by Zoom, but can't some heroes just do the right thing because, oh, I don't know, they have morals? Is that so hard to believe? Does every cop, every firefighter have some tragic backstory that propels them forward? No. So why should Barry? 
I honestly couldn't get past this, and it was another sign of the darkening of DC that would soon descend into the New 52. So I bailed on this around issue 3. It's good to hear the ending did involve Wally assisting Barry, but I couldn't help but feel DC robbed the character and his fans by unceremoniously dumping him, more or less. Do we have anything to say about that? Well, they certainly did in the New 52. They've only just introduced Wally. Have they br- they've brought Wally back re- very recently, or are about to bring him back. I think they already have done, yeah. And do you think that's caving to pressure? A little bit. Because so far, Didio's being very... No, he's not coming back. No, yeah. he's not coming back. And it wouldn't be the first time he's not really known what the left hand was doing when his right hand was saying, No, he's not coming back. <laughs> yeah, well... Pop it on the left, pop it on the right. He didn't need to. Why not? Well... There are other fans who wanted Wally, but if DC are going to bring back Barry, then Barry is the Flash. There is no need for Wally to come back in the New 52. Yeah, see, one of the things that we mentioned when we did Rebirth, sometimes DC's legacy heroes thing just confuses me. Because if you're going to... The whole point of a legacy hero is someone takes over the mantle, right? At some point, Dick Grayson becomes Batman. Yeah. That means Bruce Wayne isn't going to be Batman anymore. The minute you have Bruce Wayne being Batman... And Dick Grayson being Batman, it's a little bit silly. Are we on about the... the, the no, just yeah. general. Right, okay, okay. So if you've got Barry Allen, why do you need Wally West? Yeah. If you've got Barry Allen, why do you need Jay Garrick? Is my point. Why do you need multiple people with exactly the same power set? But then, to say you t- you're, you're assuming the Flash characters are their own Flash family. Yes. So then what, what about... Does Batman need Robin and Spider yes, and Nightwing and they're Batgirl? not the exact same character. But they're the same... Jay Garrick has exactly the same power set as Barry Allen, who has exactly the same power set as Wally West, yeah. who has exactly the same power set as Bart Allen. And at some point you're like, why do we need four of them? But Batman's a normal person. Nightwing's a normal person. But... Robin's a normal person. But... Batgirl's a normal person. Robin has been brought up by Batman as his ward so he's a slightly different character I get what you're saying in that he's got yeah. no powers but they're all just the families though but so like see I don't know because so you don't want to take away from the people that love Jay Garrick and Wally Jesse West Jesse Quick then and other ones exactly what, what, what purpose do they serve I'm willing to have my mind expanded on this. Yeah. I am willing to be open to people who email in and give me a compelling reason for why the DC universes need five speedsters. But for for me, it is just kind of like, you've got Barry or Wally. You don't need both. Yeah. What about Impulse, then? It's, uh, yeah, exactly. You don't need him. There is that, yeah. <laughs> Is my thought. I'd have to get rid of Impulse. I am I am happy to have my mind changed by a compelling argument. Okay. Um, but I'm I'm certainly of the opinion that they'd done such a good job with Wally West they didn't need to bring Barry back. But Bar- Wally's origin is so steeped in being in Barry's shadow, even when he stepped out of that, yeah. the whole origin is still motivated by being the legacy of Barry Allen, isn't it? Yeah. Whereas originally Barry wasn't Jay Garrett's legacy. Mm. Well, Barry was just Barry. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, Personally, it's, it's I prefer funny Barry to Wally. Which is funny because I grew up with Wally. I preferred Barry to Wally in terms of iconic versions of characters, which I think is what the deal's going for. Yeah. But I preferred Wally in terms of he's the one I read. Yeah. Starting when I started reading Wolfman and Perez's Teen Titans in the early 80s, he was Kid Flash. 
but essentially he was my Flash. I didn't really read the Flash much. Yeah. And then when he grew up and took over as being the Flash, and then I've just spent the past couple of years very slowly, but I've been doing it, reading through Mesner Loeb and Mike Barron and Mark Wade and then yeah. Jeff Johns' stuff. And Wally became an interesting and vital three-dimensional character in his own right. So, uh, to me, there didn't there was no need to bring Barry back at that point. You've got a Flash. Yeah. There's there's nothing saying you can't have Wally be the Flash in any external media and have his origin not be tied to Barry. Mm. But maybe that would be a little bit. Well, was he not? Yeah. yeah. That I suppose that's the thing that they're thinking of. You can't explain who Wally is without explaining who Barry is, can you? Really? Unless they did the thing where they gave Wally Barry's origin. Possibly. You, you, you're, you're annoying another fan But you're annoying though, another fan base, though, yeah. yeah. And if you're hoping to stretch all these things out into a film franchise or TV, like DC Entertainment is now, because DC Entertainment isn't DC Comics anymore. No. It's DC Franchise. And Marvel's the same, don't get me wrong. Yeah. But if that's what you want, then yes, the iconic, to use an overused term, almost as overused as status quo, Chad. <laughs> Get over it. To use it. an overused term is, yeah, we need Barry then. Yeah. I suppose. Mm. But I, I ultimately think that was the th- ultimate thinking behind the decision. Didio's always had his eye on film and TV production, because that's where he comes from. He comes from TV and animation. Mm. And therefore, he's always been of the opinion, I think, I don't know, I've never read this anywhere... But my personal opinion is he's always been thinking, how can we franchise these characters out to film and television and make some real money? Yeah. And by doing that, he needs the versions of the character where you can just say, hit by lightning, weirdo chemical spill, doesn't know what they are, CSI, go. Whereas with Wally, you do have that whole connection to Barry that you have to explain. And if you ignore it, like you say, you're pissing off a significant chunk of Wally's fan base. So then, just like CSI, you could have CSI Allen, and then it's spin off CSI West. CSI West. West. Yeah. <laughs> CSI Central City, and then CSI whatever the other Keystone City, yeah. yeah. That would totally work. It would, yeah. Two spin-off shows. Should we wrap up Chris's email? Okay. Having, having caused that tangent. Green Lantern Rebirth worked, says Chris, because no one liked how Hal Jordan was done away with in Emerald Twilight. Sure, there were many fans of Kyle Rayner, as you guys would say, he's, he's alright. But the majority of comic fans would agree Hal deserved better than to suddenly become a megalomaniac and kill all his old core brothers. Johns fixed everything that was broken with the GL mythos and didn't take anything away from Rayner. Flash Rebirth felt forced by comparison, almost an editorial mandate more than an organic story. At least to me, anyway. Despite all of this, I enjoyed your synopsis of it, and maybe I'll give the trade paperback a try sometimes. Oh, and as for the Speed Force, I liked what Wade did with it, but I kind of wish he'd come up with a better, less corny and derivative name. Till next week, Chris. Well, thank you very much, Chris. That that, that caused some, some thinking. It did. Which we don't like to do over much on this show. <laughs> we don't like to encourage people to think. We want you all to be mindless drones who just listen to what we say and don't question it. <laughs> It's like 1984. Welcome to podcasting behind the Iron Curtain. <laughs> Our next email just says, you are my jam. Which is nice. Okay. okay. Do you want to be my marmalade? <laughs> lady marmalade. Voulez-vous coucher avec moi? No, let's not do a lady marmalade thing. No, lady, yeah, Lady Gaga. Lady marmalade. I was just going to do paparazzi. I'm mixing up Please the gargoyles don't. with my marmalades, which is never good. Don't want to get your gaga in your marmalade. <laughs> it just make it not spread on your toast. Just, just be Stop silly. I'm really hungry. Quite frankly. 
It's from Jay David Wheater. Hello, David. Hello, lovely Leylands. A few quick <laughs> bullet that points. That's like. what Dave sounds like. Yeah. Hello, you seem to be picking topics tailor-made for my listening pleasure. Thank you. That's exactly what he sounds like. Okay. Totally. Number two, I stayed up late and listened to your Daredevil episodes the moment I could get them onto my phone. A great selection of issues, and Michael's observations were excellent. Oh, thank you very much. There you go. See, somebody likes you. Oh. Two see. of the 50 people... <laughs> See, oh, he's done one to see. Hey. Oh. <laughs> Very funny. I like that. That's funny. See, Michael, regardless of the fate of the show, listening to you grow up and take your dad to school a bit in the Flash Rebirth episode made me proud. You are on point and bringing your A game. Well, thank you very much again. I typically lean towards Andrew's opinion, as we are from a similar vintage and mindset, but you definitely took me to school with your insight. I applaud you for really giving me some fresh perspectives. Number four. Wally's suppression in the Jeff Johns Francis Manipal run made me sad. He was taken off the map before Flashpoint, which is a shame, since Wally was the superhero American dream, sidekick come successor, and even surpassing Barry in some aspects. Five, I can easily prove that the new 52 wasn't planned as far in advance as Didier would have us believe. Look at the stories told over the final year of the post-crisis DE universe. DC universe. Are these the stories told by a universe that would shortly be reset? Were they fearless? No. Would Bruce Wayne have returned? Would Superman have walked across the country? No. If it's going to be reset, what is it to lose by telling stories that have a no-going-back feel? Discuss. It's funny. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit funny. This feeling inside. This feeling inside from this email. Okay. I was just thinking about this the other day. Yeah. When, uh, I don't know why, something provoked this thought, probably me not wanting to work, <laughs> I would imagine. You think an awful lot, though. I do. <laughs> work I don't do it outside of work outside of work I have plenty to occupy my time uh, I was thinking one of the, the disappointments of the new 52 is that it didn't end he didn't give us that's my reasoning why I don't think the 52 was planned as much as he would have believed if he yeah. had planned it if he'd have gone in and said, right, we are going to reboot the entire universe in a year's time you've got 12 months to do whatever the hell you like and he'd Corralled Mike Carlin. Kevin Smith might have come back to Kevin the Smith might have come Lightning back. Guy Part 2. Mike Carlin comes back to edit the Superman books and he picks creative teams from all post-crisis. So we bring back John Byrne, we bring back Jan Jurgens, Jerry Ardway, any of those people who produced Superman in that run. And Denny O'Neill comes back out of retirement to edit the Batman books and he brings back Chuck Dixon and Graham Nolan and Scott McDaniel and all that. Would lot. that really work for a modern audience? That, but what I'm saying is he's ending that era. Right, so okay. the modern audience stuff not really too bothered here's a chance because for all the these people will get the, yeah. Yeah. here's a chance for all the people who toiled in the trenches throughout the 90s creating the new mythology following the Crisis on Infinite Earths give them the opportunity to end the stories and you bring George Perez back for Wonder Woman and whoever yeah. else did Wonder Woman Mike Diodato or whatever and you do the same with all of them you bring back creative people who were at the peak of their game on those characters and you let them do 12 issue story that wraps up the whole thing he did that for Neil Adams though and it didn't work out well. yeah well Batman Odyssey's not really that is it it's just him coming back to Batman which is a different thing yeah but I honestly think if, if, if Didio had let them do that I think we'd have been a lot more open to the idea of New 52. Because whatever you think of whatever happened to the Man of Tomorrow, you got the final Superman story. Yeah. I mean, it's as people have pointed out, it's a final Silver Age Superman story, rather than the Bronze Age, but it still works as the last Superman story. Whether you like it or not, that era ended. Yeah. And something like whatever happened to the Cape Crusader. Yeah. Yeah, that would have been... 
even better if they'd have ended. If that had this, brought the if, yeah the post crisis DC if that was to an a end. few years later. Yeah. So that's I think, but the fact that it happened so quickly, it reeks of we're going to do this and we're going to do it quick before anyone can convince me to change my mind. <laughs> it's a man who wasn't exactly convinced by what he was doing. Yeah. In my opinion, irrespective of what the new Fifty Two ended up being. I think if he'd done a Crisis-esque... And I'm not even on about an event. Mm. I'm on about each character gets their own ending. Yeah. Wonder Woman gets a 12-issue send-off. Batman, Superman, Green Lantern, whoever. They all get ended. I'm not talking about a big multi-crisis that crosses onto every single title and you have to buy every boot, but by definition, that's not a Dan Didio thing then, is it? True. So... Well, instead of doing that, they could have at least finished the stories they were telling. Jeff Johns could have finished his Green Lantern. <laughs> Morrison could have finished his Batman. Yeah, and they could have done it, as Dave points out here, they could have been fearless with it. Yeah. If they'd have said to him, right, Grant, Batman Incorporated is going to run to the end this next year. You may have to truncate some of your ideas and some of your stories, but do whatever the hell you want. You can, he did anyway. you can write the last Batman story. Yeah. And you think Grant Morrison wouldn't have said, "Oh, I that's a grand idea." The way Incorporated ended, I, that wouldn't have you, been a good ending. You're ended. totally convinced that he did. Incorporated. Incorporated. Works better with an ending that it's not the end. Right. Because well, no, that in and of itself is an ending, though, isn't it? Yeah. All good things is the last episode of Star Trek: The Next Generation. It's the best last of episode any Star Trek show ever did. But it doesn't they end. On. Yeah, it ends with the ship just going to the next you adventure. You end, but they don't. Yeah, yeah. They're still out there having their adventures until that piece of crap generations came out and completely ruined it for us. <laughs> but other than that, yeah. So yeah, not having an ending is in and of cheers. It just the the message behind it is. That Batman's lost Damien, but he's still Batman. Yeah, but he's still, still going to go on. Yeah. Cheers is another one. The last episode of Cheers just just ends. Yeah. Tomorrow, Norm and Cliff will still show up at Cheers having a beer. We just not there watching them anymore. Fair enough. And so that is that is still an ending. Yeah. A non-ending is still an ending if that is how you decide to end it. Mm-hmm. In my opinion. Anyway, uh, Dave's email finishes off. Thanks for thinking of Dave when choosing your topics. And remember that I also thought of putting BJ and the Burr into Optimus Prime. <laughs> that would be cool. Your pal, Dave. Well, you're very welcome, Dave. Thank you very much for emailing it. I still think that a car Optimus Prime crossover would be the best thing. Seeing as Peter Cullen did the voice for both of them. Wouldn't Optimus Prime just drive over car, though? <laughs> no, car would survive. Because Car could leap over Optimus ah, there Prime. Is. But then Optimus Prime could, could transform and punch him out of the sky. Ah, but Kit would survive such a thing. <laughs> because he's not Kit, he's Car. <laughs> no, I just messed up. Kit, Kit would survive, yeah. Kit would survive, yeah. Watch him by the sidelines. Michael and Sarah is undestructible. <laughs> Indestructible. Undestructible is not a word. It is today. It is, today. It is in Hasselhoff's dictionary. It is in the Hoff dictionary. The Hoff dictionary. <laughs> Awesome, absolutely awesome. Another Flash Rebirth email. Mm-hmm. This time it's Mighty Mike Bailey. Mikey Mike B. In the house! Oh, you were going to do it! I don't do it. Oh, no, you're normally the one who takes the mick out of me for, for saying that. He's not in this house. Mikey Mike B in the house, just it not writes ours. itself. Mikey Mike B in the car to work. <laughs> hey there, Leyland. <laughs> so I find myself in an odd position. Have you been reading the Karma Sutra again, Mike? <laughs> Usually when I listen to an episode of Hey Kicks Comics, I find myself agreeing with Andrew, which probably makes him happy. It does. It makes me very happy. <laughs> it's not that I don't agree with Michael, but if I had to put the two up against each other, Andy comes out the winner because we're closer in age. Booyah! And you're probably stronger than me. 
You can get told off for beating up your uh, young people. I, I, apparently that's against the law now if I take a switch to you. Oh, yeah. Imagine my surprise then, continues Mike, when in the span of five or so minutes I find myself disagreeing with Andy not once, <laughs> but twice. That could be a James Bond novel. You only disagree twice. <laughs> well, to be fair... then Bond shoots you in the face. Yeah. Come along with me, Miss Penny Penny. I will show you how I work. Mike continues, well, well, to be fair, the first time was one of those moments where I agreed with the basis of his argument, but I found myself in the position where I had to argue against it. Andy's opening statement, this show has the best intros in all of podcasting, in my opinion. Well, thank you, Michael. I, spend, I do spend a lot of time on them, don't I? <laughs> Seems to argue the point that as solid as Crisis on Infinite Earths was, it kind of removed one of the ways the DC universe was unique as a fictional universe. And on this level, he's right. When I first started learning about the multiverse, I was fascinated by it. And the more I learned, the more I loved it. There was an infinite number of possibilities, and you could tell dramatic, game-changing stories with established properties, whilst always having the more traditional version to fall back on. Where I started to disagree was Andy's argument, and forgive me if I heard it wrong, was the idea of legacy characters, which were not a suitable replacement for the multiverse. Mike, you're not hearing it wrong. Again, on one hand, I can see what he's saying. I knew what he was thinking, and he's right. Legacies are not as epic as having another version of the characters living in their own world, but having grown up in the post-crisis universe and learned to love the idea of the legacy character, I can't exactly give my full endorsement to Andy's thesis. It would be disingenuous of me to do so, because I grew up loving the idea there was a legacy of characters like The Flash and Green Lantern. It made for some great stories, especially Wally West's journey. Here was the sidekick that actually fulfilled the mandate of assuming the mentor's name. I know that Andy wasn't dismissing this outright, but from the way he framed his opening statement, he made it seem that it was a weaker substitute for the multiple Earths. Um, you didn't mishear it. That is exactly what I think. I don't disagree. This is one of those things where we, we don't disagree, but we don't actually see eye to eye. Yeah. I mean, I've just mentioned, just not five minutes ago, it may have been a bit longer than that, we talk a lot, don't we? Not five minutes ago, Wally West was my Flash, and I love that he grew up in the Perez Wolfman te Teen Titans, to being the Flash in his own series, to being a womanising asshole, to settling down and getting married and having children, and I loved that character development, and I loved what he became. I do think, though, with the benefit of 30 years of hindsight, that Crisis on Infinite Earths, as good as I think it is, and I do think it's good, mm. I think Crisis on Infinite Earths is damn good, I think ultimately it made for a weaker DC universe, and it took away what was unique about the DC universe, and it's put us to where we are now. I genuinely think that, and it's, it's not that I don't like Wally. Or even think that Kyle Rayner or John Stewart or Guy Gardner couldn't have been a suitable Green Lantern replacement. They could have been, for all I know. I've never read any. But I do think Crisis ultimately was wrong-headed in what it did. Now, obviously, 30 years of hindsight is a valuable gift. Yeah. Where was I 30 years ago to be able to say to DC, are you sure you want to do this? Because there's no denying, again, like Mike said, it's, I can't be disingenuous about the fact that I loved Burns Superman. And I've just finished The Flash and I've loved it. And I loved the gif in Di Matteo's Justice League yeah. and Perez's Wonder Woman. And even, you know, Batman. I mean, Batman took a little bit of time to settle down after the crisis. But I still love that era of Batman. Those 90s comics are still great. But I do think Crisis hurt more than it helped, ultimately. That's my opinion. What's yours? 
I don't have that much of an opinion. Well, you do, because you don't really come from a post a pre-crisis DC universe at all, do you? No, but I, could it not be the same to the New 52? Mm. That's just my crisis. But the thing with the New 52, though, is the other universe didn't end. That's that's what again what we were just saying. Yeah. Had it had an ending, maybe we've been a bit more grateful to it. I mean, for me personally, I just don't think the qualities there in the New Fifty Two, apart from uh, Batman and All Star Western. Uh, no, I'd, I'd say they're making it work, really. They probably are, but I'm at the point now where I'm just not interested in it. I think they're limiting it themselves, but they're also doing quite a fair bit. That's naff. Well, they're also doing. I mean, this. Uh, yeah, it always seems stupid. This because you're criticising DC for doing stuff that Marvel do. Yeah, there is that. There is. You look from pig to man and man to pig, and there is no difference. Mm. But I always, at the moment, my thinking is DC are just bilking their existing fan base. How many weekly comics have they got at the minute? Quite. There's only about three or four, though. Really. There's, there's this new futures. There's a future path rip-off that they're doing. That's ending soon, though. That's when you started? It's only a mini-event. Is it? Yeah. But it's still weekly. And then there's Batman Eternal. And then isn't there two other weekly series? The, the only other weekly ones are digital. Right, okay. Fair enough, fair enough. Maybe I'm talking out my ass, I don't know. Well, <laughs> usually are. <laughs> yeah, how would that be any different <laughs> than usual? Anyway, Mike's email continues. As an aside, I think they went a little bit overboard with this concept when Dan DiDio came on board. Suddenly there were legacies for the sake of being a legacy, unlike Wally becoming The Flash, which felt more organic. Again, I don't disagree with you. I think of all of them, Wally taking over Barry's mantle is the one that worked. But I would argue also he's maybe the exception that proves the rule, possibly. The second thing I disagreed with Andy about was the speed force. Oh, well, on this, I just think we're not going to agree, quite frankly. When I see specific problems with it, especially when it comes to this story, I loved that idea when Wade introduced it. Suddenly all the speedsters were connected and they made up their own little family. That appealed to the 18-year-old in me and it still appeals 20 years later. I will admit by the time Rebirth came around that idea had played itself out, but when it was happening the Speed Force was one of my favourite parts of the Flash book. Alright then, so let's play devil's advocate here. Let's say then if Flash Rebirth had done what I wanted it to do and got rid of the Speed Force, yeah. would that have been okay? Because as Mike points out, by this point the Speed Force has become played out, so if he'd got rid of it, would that have been a good thing? All that stuff would have still existed. Doesn't anymore. Uh, Does the Speed Force exist in the New 52? Yeah. Does it? Yeah, right, so. is that it, still it, around? It has to. Otherwise Flashpoint in the New 52 wouldn't have happened. Right, okay. I'll tell you what, I only read the first six issues of Manipul's Flash. I mean, it, it, it was good. Did we? I yeah. thought we only read the first six. No, we got up to Gorilla Grodd City and then we stopped buying So it. we did, yeah. Because mm. I, I was always like, I'll pick him up in the 50p bins and I never have. But it was really good stuff. It yeah, it was. I did enjoy that, but I don't remember. Maybe I just blanked the speed force out of my head. Yeah, well, <laughs> I don't remember much of it, but I know it needed to happen and I think by the new 52 it was just speed force. Right. Okay. Fair enough. Other than that, y'all did a great job covering the story, continues Mike. Shag and I started to when the series first started coming out, but we lost interest after a few two. I ended up liking the series about a year ago when I finally sat down and read both this and the series that followed it. It was interesting to see the first hints of Flashpoint when it was just another Blackest Night type crossover event and not the kickstart to the New 52. 
I will also recommend to you and the listeners Secret Origins issue 50. That was the last issue of Secret Origins and it contains the post-crisis, pre-infinite and final crisis version of how the two Flashes first met. It had art by the late, great Mike Parabek and was written by Grant Morrison and has a fun little hook at the end that made me smile. Still loving the show. Thanks for putting it out. Mikey Mike B. Well, you're very welcome, Michael. Even when we disagree, we still agree, kind of. (laughs) We're very reasonable men, though, aren't we? For the most part, Mike and I. I think so. Anyway, we've not got time for any more emails. We're over our allotted email time. Demonzo's going to come in in a minute. And he's going he's gonna to ring that bell. And we will be fined by the DCC. For the Demonzo over, Corporation something or other. For going over curfew time. Yeah. The DCC won't let me be or let me be me, so let me see. Did we pull a Springsteen with our emails? <laughs> we did. We're going to take a break and be right... This is an imaginary podcast, which may never have happened. The Shortbox Showcase. But then again may have. About a father and daughter. I'm Professor Allen. And I'm Emily. Who came from Ohio and talked about comics. Walking Dead. Tintin. Black Lightning. White Tiger. It tells of their rise to glory, when the great guests were yet to be booked. Let's put it this way, Shogun Warriors wasn't going to win any Eisners and the great feats of editing not yet performed. This is Ultra 7, this is Ultraman Jack, and this is Ultraman Taro, and this is Ultraman Leo, and this is Ultra- Of how they spoke at length. This continuity is really the brainchild of nitpicking nerds the world over. But to be fair, the best kind of confession is the Force Confession. And reviewed in brief tales that explore creatively the bounds of a given character's history. Red Sun is wonderful with a very strange ending. Of brilliant creators before their fall from grace. This is the era where Miller is at the height of his creative and artistic powers, and the ability of strong writing to encapsulate and transcend its time. Flash of Two Earths by Gardner Fox. This is an imaginary podcast. Aren't they all? Shortbox Showcase is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. Check us out on the web at Relatively Geeky Podcast blogspot.com or search on iTunes for Relatively Geeky or Shortbox Showcase. And remember, we're not experts. We're just family. The 70s were a time of great change and comics, as all evolving art forms must do, needed to adapt to the times. One way Marvel and DC sought to do this was an increase in female-laid characters, a couple of which we covered a few weeks ago. Another was to create high-profile characters of different races. The rise of popular musicians such as Jimi Hendrix, Dinah Ross and the Jacksons, the success of black exploitation movies such as Shaft and Foxy Brown, and the changing of the political landscape with the introduction of the UK Race Relations Act so that employers could no longer discriminate on grounds of colour added to the feel that comics were severely lacking in positive role models for different races. And if that jived with Marvel's new objective marketing plan's stated goals of capturing trends and filling needs, then so much the better. I do like how you spell flexploitation. That's how you spell it? Is it? Yeah, with an X. I've always seen it with a 
CK? No, I've always seen it as an X. In our coverage so far, we've already seen the Apache Thunderbird and Aurora Munro, aka Storm, in the more multinational incarnation of the X-Men. But earlier than that, both companies created characters that they hoped would become firm favourites. Stanley and Jack Kirby had already opened the doors with the creation of T'Challa, the Black Panther, in 1966. Plus, there had already been an African prince, Waku, Prince of Bantu, from Jungle Tales, published by Atlas Comics in the 1950s. But these were both African characters rather than African-American. The African-American gunfighter Lobo, published by Dell Comics, had his own series in 1965, and the Falcon Sam Wilson, the first African-American Marvel superhero character, appeared in Captain America in 1969. But the first true African-American superhero title was Luke Cage, Hero for Hire, issue 1, cover dated June 1972. A very, very good month in a very good year. Okay. Yes. I was born! (laughs) Created by Archie Goodwin, George Tusker, and designed by John Romita, Cage is a pretty textbook 1970s character. Named Carl Lucas, he's in jail for a crime he didn't commit. He's experimented on with a secret formula. The warden of the prison Luke is in is corrupt and sabotages the formula. The experiment goes awry. His skin is transformed to be as hard as steel and he's given enhanced strength. With no way to prove he's innocent, Carl goes on the run, taking the name Luke Cage and becomes a hero for hire, albeit one who rarely seems to get paid. As this is a Marvel book, subplots about his past life, girlfriend and old friends who turn out to be mobsters abound, and Cage is presented as a prototypical angry young man. So far, so cliched, but there's something about Luke Cage that is appealing. His power level isn't amazingly fantastic. Sure, bullets bounce off his chest, but he's still just a man trying to survive in a world that seems to beat him down at every opportunity. There's something magnificently pulpy about these origins that have transcended cliché and become iconic. Why Cage was never adapted to the screen in the 70s with Fred Williamson in the title role is one of life's great mysteries. Hell, even the cover of Hero for Hire issue 1 by John Romita could have been a blaxploitation classic movie poster. It features Luke in his magnificently dated yet wonderfully kitschy yellow shirt that seems to have no buttons from the belly button upwards, blue jeans, silver tiara and bracelets that presumably Wonder Woman had cast off, and chain belt standing in front of a montage of neon lights sexy ladies, gambling dens, and corrupt coppers. The early issues of Cage featured him relocating to New York's Harlem district and setting himself up as a hero for hire. A supporting cast and rogues gallery were introduced, and Roy Thomas, Archie Goodwin, and Steve Englehart all handled the writing. However, one of the most interesting issues from early in Cage's run is undoubtedly issue number 9, cover dated May 1973. The cover is by Billy Graham and shows Doctor Doom blasting Cage with his gauntlets, declaring, None may invade my kingdom. Here it is I who have the power. The power of life and death. Cage staggers back, hit in the chest by the blast. As a cover, the anatomy is screwy as hell. Cage is stood with his legs so far apart he's practically doing the split, and Doom's calves are as wide as his thighs, but it is gloriously 70s and magnificently kitschy. I particularly like Luke's uh, mullet herdo. Which yeah. I, I, I suppose is meant to be an afro. Uh, that's also, yeah. But it kind of comes across as more mullety. A mafro. A mafro, yeah. What do, you, what do you think of that cover? It's 
it does the job. Yeah. <laughs> uh, my problem with it is a problem I will have, and I'll probably mention more as we go through. Doom doesn't talk like Doom. Mm. Should he not say, none may invade Doom's kingdom, for I am Doom. He doesn't yeah. say my, he doesn't say hi. He would have said, here it is Doom who has the power of life and death. Wouldn't he? He always says Doom. He doesn't say I or me. So I didn't think that that worked terribly well. May just be me, I don't know. Were Angels Fear to Tread was written by Steve Englehart with art by George Tusker and Billy Graham. It was lettered by D. Vladimir. I don't know if that's a real name. Coloured by Stan G. What? And edited by Roy Thomas. What is it with the people on this book? They don't have real names? Pseudonyms. Yeah, probably. Luke Cage, fighting mad with spitting feathers, heads over to the Baxter building to borrow a jet of some type. Apparently, Dr. Doom has stiffed him over a $200 fee from a job he recently performed, and he wants his money, damn it! Reed Richards, impressed with Cage's chutzpah, gives him a vehicle that takes him directly to Latveria. However, Doom has measures against the FF just dropping in for a chat, and Cage's craft is forced to the ground. He is set upon by Doom's agents, but they, in turn, are attacked by hordes of rebelling robots. The robots are being spurred on by the Faceless One, an alien being with a penchant for 50 sci-fi costumes and Mysterio's bubble hat, who tries to lure Cage in with his tales of robotic revolt against an evil tyrannical master, but Cage isn't having none of that jive. He just wants his money. Using the robot's attack for his own means, Cage gains access to Castle Doom, and Doom himself and fisticuffs ensue. For reasons of convenience, Cage manages to disable Doom's armour, and the Faceless One arrives to claim victory. Cage switches sides, yes, you heard that right, and aids Doom because murder ain't his gig, you dig, and the Faceless One is forced to flee. Doom offers his gratitude and finally pays Luke his money, and Luke leaves as the robot rebellion storms Castle Doom. The next day, Luke arrives back at the Baxter building, where a newspaper headline reveals that Doom managed to overthrow a robot coup and retains power. The Thing demands to know what happened, but Cage is just too damn tired and heads for home. That was pretty succinct, wasn't it? Yeah. As a synopsis is go, we've done longer. Uh, we open on Luke Cage storming the Baxter building and being attacked by the Thing, the Human Torch, and Medusa, Sue having taken a leave of absence at this time. It turns out he's there to ask to borrow the equivalent of the FF's car. Why could he not just ask? Because then you wouldn't have the dynamic fight. <laughs> is that what it is? Yes. It's a dynamic fight, is it? Okay, it's a fight. Oh, yeah, I must have missed that memo. Um... You know, yeah, he just shows up and he beats on the thing and trashes the building. And how did he get in? The same way Spider-Man got in. What, so there's an untold story of Luke Cage getting into the building, (laughs) past all the FF safeguards that are supposedly there to prevent this very thing from happening. And yet it keeps happening. And yet it keeps... If I was Reed, I'd be taking all that stuff back. (laughs) Because quite frankly, whoever it is who has sold him this burglar alarm equipment has sold him a bill of goods, hasn't it? Yeah. The next day he came back and said, you know, I've got a bridge I want to sell you. And Reed went, okay. Because <laughs> Reed's apparently a bit of a crap git. All things considered. What do they need a bridge for? Why do they need this security system? They don't seem work. <laughs> Luke Cage can just rock up at the Baxter building. It doesn't matter. Apparently. This being Cage's book, he takes down the thing which I find very hard to believe. And Medusa admires his spunk. Yes. <laughs> does she really? Yes, I'm, I'm sure that she does. Is this one of those differences in language? Because spunk means something completely different over here. Spunk means... Uh, Hutzpah. Yeah, you're brave. Yeah, you've, you've got a lot of 
spunk, haven't you? Got a lot of it. Got a lot of spunk. It's nice to see your spunk. Look, I'll, I'll wash the socks, <laughs> all right. Yeah, yeah, we are milking that because we can get away with it. <laughs> Doom has safeguards against the FF, and presumably any foreign craft entering his airspace. And it was nice of him to just lower the craft safely to the ground after he stops it from flying over Doom, Doomstat, or whatever the hell it's called. One would have thought Doom would have just blown it up. Instead, a big hologram appears. Yeah. And stops the helicopter in mid-air, and then lowers it ever so gently to the ground. Maybe he just, he just likes his theatrics. <laughs> well, we know that, because he's, he's Doctor Doom. He has a manservant called Manfred. What's all that about? What, Manfred? <laughs> Manfred the manservant. Or maybe it's because he genuinely does have safeguards only against the Fantastic Four. So this Fantastic Four ship rocks up, he's like, ah, the FF! Oh, it's, it's just some it's guy... It's not the FF! It's just some guy in a yellow shirt. Oh, I better <laughs> let him live. I better not kill him then, because <laughs> Doom is feeling magnanimous this day. He's only nine issues into his title. <laughs> Doom will not kill you yet! <laughs> It is a good day for Doom to die. Well, we'll wait for another 40, ni- 40 issues. <laughs> Before we find you not guilty of the crime you didn't commit. Cage runs into the robot revolution, which did beg the question how long this robot revolution had been going on, and when did it start, and have the robots become sentient, and are they AI? How long has the faceless one been doing this? How did he instigate it? Why does he refer to Cage having killed some of his agents in a previous story? Can you kill a machine? Can you kill a Transformer? Yes, because Transformers aren't machines in the true sense of the word. But but from our email feedback, Transformers are actually life forms. But, like, can you kill a Cylon? Was a Cylon a toaster? Or was it a life form? Oh, and were the people Cylons? Could you kill them? But Mm. could you not kill the toaster Cylons? Some of these questions may have been answered in the last issue. Yeah. Because this feels very much like a two-parter. But there were too many unanswered questions in and of this issue itself, which kind of led me to think it was it was a little bit badly plotted. I did have a flick through the issue before this that reveals that the robots fled to the US, disguised themselves as African Americans, and Doom hired Cage to stop them from something. That was a bit vague, even in the last issue. Either way, there's no real explanations forthcoming, so you either accept it... Like we did. Yeah. Or you just sit there going, this makes no sense! Which isn't for really the story held together. Yeah, yeah. But there was a couple of... Yeah, there was a couple of things where you were like, why did this happen? Why are they doing this? What's all this about? They're machines! They're toasters! Microsoft versus Dell. (laughs) Or Apple. The faceless one, when Cage meets him, he is wearing Mysterio's bubble hat, isn't he? Yeah. The faceless one likens the plight to that of slaves. And Cage just rightly shoots this down as BS. Mm. I love that he saw right through that. And he's like, no, this is not similar to the situation <laughs> in any way whatsoever. And besides, I want my money. That's all he's bothered about. He's very one note. Mm. He wants what he, he's owed, which is fair enough. The faceless one says that Doom manufactures his slaves. So by that reckoning, we are enslaving our race of dishwashers. Of course. That way. Because, seriously, this felt very spurious to me. You can read this as the faceless one trying to get Cage on side, but Cage is having none of it. Mm. Which I liked a great deal, because, let's be honest, they're machines, not men. Look, sir. Toasters. Yes. When Cage finally gets to confront Doctor Doom, which does take 14 pages, 
he mentions Doom. Sorry, mentions his plans for world conquest. Cage doesn't care. Yeah, he wants his money. The fight between the two is satisfying initially, although Cage getting the upper hand is very, very dumb. I forged my armour to withstand anything, claims Doom, except repeated stress at a solitary point, apparently. So if somebody hits Doom in the same place a few times, his armour buckles. Did that make sense? He's been toe-to-toe with the thing on any number of and occasions, yeah, Luke and Cage yeah, Luke Cage well, manages to do this. It's Luke Cage's title. He takes down the thing, he can take down Doctor Doom. Yeah, alright, fair or enough. Or maybe it's not Doctor Doom. Maybe it's one of his robots. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that, 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 that works perfectly. I did like the ending, after we get the big fight scene. I did like that, having paid Cage, we leave Doom on his own in that room, and the robots just enter. And we don't see what happens next until the final page where you see the um, the newspaper headline. That kind of left the whole story ambiguous slightly up until you got there. You didn't know whether Doom was going to be overthrown. Mm. What did you think of this one? Um, yeah. <laughs> it was fine. It was fine. Um, I didn't like how he only wanted the money, but he's got to be a bit, you know, he must have a lot of spunk to go up against <laughs> Doctor Doom for just $200. Well, well Medusa admires his spunk. Maybe he only did it. You know, he was a bit hesitant going into the Baxter building. Should I do it? Maybe the FF will talk me out of it. Medusa's like, oh no, you have to. No, no, I I don't get the impression that Luke was in any way in any doubt what he was doing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it is hard to sum this up, to be honest. Firstly, Engelhart completely fails to capture Doom's speech passions. Yeah. Speech patterns. Sorry, I can't speak. And yet it's only one simple. Yeah, and at no point in this issue does Doom speak in the third person or even say, bah! At no point does he go, bah, Doom has no time for your trifling. None of that ever happens, does it? Yeah. Never occurs. Very disappointed. His jive speak for Cage also seems very dated to our ears, but this may very well have been a good approximation of the dialogue of the time. I've got no idea, so I'm willing to give him a pass on that one. My problem is none of the dialogue in this is particularly good. I tried my trick of reading it aloud to see if it worked and it just sounds silly I mean the story idea is pretty impressive Cage going to all this trouble over a matter of $200 is so stupid that it works even if the cost of getting him to Latveria was probably more than 200 bucks. a much better ending would have been if Cage had arrived back and then Reed would have billed him $200 for jet fuel <laughs> that would have been really funny he gets like, I got my money, and then Reed goes, I'll have that, thank you very much. You think these things run for free? You think they run a fresher, Mr. Cage? No, they do not. A jet admission fee. Yeah. <laughs> Engelhart tries to layer a slavery subtext onto the story, but thankfully, Cage points out that that's just a lot of hooey, mainly because robots are machines. There's no indication given in this story, taken in and of itself, that the robots are sentient, so we don't care about the plight. Again, a better ending would have been Doom just turning the power off in Castle Doom and all these robots just going... and closing down. And to have Cage join forces with Doom just so he gets his $200 seemed very dubious. Although Engelhart tries to make it work, and the premise of the series is that Cage is a hero for hire, so wanting paying for his work's not that unreasonable. The art was ugly. Yeah. There was there's no other word for it. It may suit other issues, 
that are set in a gritty 70s Harlem, but in the gleaming futuristic Baxter building and the medieval Latveria, it just looks pretty bad. Engelhardt has said that Tusker would ignore his plots with the explanation that I didn't feel like drawing that, which goes some way to explaining the problem. So, with all these things that we've pointed out, why was this so much fun? Luke Cage is kind of funny, though he's kind of He is, isn't he? Cage is just a cool character. That's that's the be-all and end-all of it. His motivations and outlook are so off-kilter at this point, one just can't help but find him intriguing. His simple bloody-mindedness in his quest is so bizarre. It's hilarious. Doom, for his part, is incredibly out of character throughout the issue. How funny would it have been if Cage just showed up and Doom had just paid him? Because <laughs> yeah. that Doom is a representative of the government of Latveria, whether we like it or Doom not. Doom was the government. Yeah, exactly. He is the government of Latveria. So, how surely you wouldn't stiff a guy over $200. Surely that's going to be bad for business. Yeah, what if there was no robot revolution as well? Yeah, he just rocked up. Yeah. And Doom just gave him the money and he went home. Sup, Doom? Come for my 200 you jive. Yeah, it's okay. <laughs> I want my money, metal man. <laughs> And Doom goes, Doom will not affront this. You'll know more Arigato. <laughs> Doom will not be accused of paying his debts. Here is $200 from Doom's personal wallet. <laughs> Here's another 100 if you don't tell anyone I didn't pay up front. <laughs> and here's another 100 if you don't tell people Doom has a Hello Kitty wallet. <laughs> like Hello Kitty. Here's another 100 if you get people to come here. Latveria has very poor tourist attractions. <laughs> Wonder why? Because <laughs> all the robots are having a revolution. That's what it is. Revolutions are bad for tourism. <laughs> yeah, nobody likes to be caught in the middle of a revolution when you're all on it, do you? They were none of that. You don't want to think about that stuff. I'm trying to get a tan. I mean, granted, Latveria doesn't look particularly sunny, but, you know, maybe it's just a bad time of year. All, the, all them death rays might give you a bit of a tan. <laughs> The fact that no plane can get there because of that barrier may be hindering his tourist industry. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. Uh, Influential. Um, Only in so much that the character of Luke Cage, one of the best 70s creations, although it would take later writers to flesh him out a bit better. It helps, though, that Cage is a character in his own right. He's not a knockoff of anybody else. For the female characters, Marvel rather cack-handedly repurposed female versions of their already existing male characters. Female Hulk, female Spider-Man, et al. And satisfyingly, that's not the case here. Does it hold up? God, no, it's as dated as 8-track. Isn't it? Yeah. But, with all that being said, it was astonishingly good fun. Jab, Turkey. <laughs> oh, we've been doing, like... I don't know if it's relevant or anything, so you want to cut it out, but we've been doing a lot of black English in our English language lesson recently. Yeah. And everyone's saying, what's jive, turkey? What's all this? Like, oh, man, I've been reading 70s comics recently. Really? Not? Did you explain to people what jive, turkey meant? Oh, that's because, yeah, I, I know all this stuff. Yeah, and like, why? Uh, reading comics. Did, and as well, and you say my dad watches a lot of Dirty Harry. <laughs> DC's answer to Luke Cage was take a character with an already existing fan base and add a new face to it. John Stewart was inducted to the Green Lantern Corps in Green Lantern Green Arrow issue 87, cover dated January 1972. If any team working in comics can be said to be the fathers of relevance, it's Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams. Denny O'Neill Adams? Denny O'Neill Adams, yeah. They took Batman back to his gothic roots and injected a healthy dose of realism into the strip in the aftermath of the camp 
Crusader. But it's in the Green Lance and Green Arrow title that they both started to tackle social ills and societal problems. Starting with issue 78 in April of 1970, O'Neill teamed up Green Arrow Oliver Queen with Hal Jordan's Green Lantern and recast them as social crusaders for equality, running a number of issues based on storylines normally based around Oliver Queen's hatred of Fat Cat and The Man, and Hal's, to be frank, cluelessness. Over the run, O'Neill tackles such topics as ecology, feminism, and, most famously, drug addiction in a series that can be most charitably described as worthy but dull. It's not that the stories are bad by any means, but O'Neill sometimes let the issues get in the way of the tale he's telling, and the dialogue is frequently clunky. Too often, Ollie is shown as being right, and everybody else wrong, as opposed to a more balanced approach to the problem. To that end, it's almost satisfying when we learn that Ollie's ward, Roy Harper, is addicted to heroin, because not only does it show Ollie's flaws, but it also takes the sanctimonious git down a peg or two in the process. To be fair, O'Neill does deserve credit for giving Ollie a personality at all. Prior to this, he was a charisma-free zone. Into this mix, O'Neill and Adams threw in John Stewart. Stewart was an important creation for DC and actually predates Luke Cage, although he would have to wait a while before getting his own book. Stewart is probably more popular than Luke Cage with the mainstream public, largely due to him being the Green Lantern of choice on the really rather good Justice League cartoon show of the early 2000s. The cover of issue 87 is devoted to the character of John Stewart. Hal Jordan's Green Lantern is prone on the floor as John, also wearing a Green Lantern Corps uniform and possessed of a power ring, tries to pull him back to his feet. They whipped the Green Lantern, he screams. Now let him try me. Introducing an unforgettable new character who really means it when he warns, Beware my power, the cover copy runs. There are no backgrounds, but Adam's figure work is immediately recognisable, and it's quite striking in its own way. What do you think of that cover? I think it's good, but I'm not sure about the whole white background. Do you not think it makes it stand out a lot that it's just the figures? Because you don't know, you've got no context for the story because of it. So you don't know who this guy is who's wearing the Green Lantern uniform. You don't know why he's powering the ring at us, the reader, which is what he's doing. We don't know why Green Lantern's passed out on the floor. It's a very, oh, what's going on here cover. Yeah, but it just looks empty with a white background. You think? Maybe a street wouldn't have gone amiss. <laughs> maybe, maybe a background of any kind <laughs> yeah. wouldn't have gone amiss. I don't know, okay, I'm not disagreeing. I like the cover, I like the figure work. Yeah. I'm not going to disagree with you that maybe it could have done with a little bit of a background, but, you know, it makes the green of the logo and of the costumes pop out, doesn't it? Yeah. So it's good in, in that respect. Beware My Power was written by Dennis O'Neill with art by Neil Adams and Dick Giordano. An earthquake causes damage to the city and Green Lantern tries to assist. However, he arrives too late to help Green Lantern's second choice, Guy Gardner, from being hit by a bus whilst trying to rescue a young girl from a destroyed bridge. Gardner will be hospitalised for a few months and the GL Corps needs to pick another. They lead Hal to John Stewart, a young black man in the ghetto, and after witnessing Stewart get into an altercation with the police, Jordan isn't convinced. However, the corps have spoken, and so Hal introduces himself and invites John Stewart to the party. After a quick training session in how to use the power ring, John states he ain't wearing no mask as they fly past the airport, where a celebrity seems to be arriving. John knows who it is, but before he can buzz by, an oil tanker skids out of control. Hal takes to help in the crowd where John stops the oil tanker, but 
misses and the tanker spills some oil all over the arriving Senator Jeremiah Clutcher. John teases the man and later informs Hal that Clutcher is aiming to run for president, but he's a stone-cold racist. Hal says that's no concern of theirs, they are not here to play judge and jury, and he assigns John the job of protecting Clutcher. John doesn't do a great job of it, as later at a rally Clutcher is shot by an assailant. Hal takes after the man who missed, but John runs the other way and nabs a man with a machine gun in the car park about to shoot a copper. John explains to Hal that the first guy was a setup made to look like an attempt on Clutcher's life failed, whilst the second guy shooting the man in the car park would have started a race riot. Hal, sickened by Clutcher, sends him packing back to Congress as the two GLs realise they may have more in common than they first thought. It was good, this one. Mm-hmm. We don't want to shoot your load too soon. Maybe we don't like our spunk. Who knows? <laughs> O'Neill severely overwrites the opening with the earthquake, though. The opening, yeah. the opening page, the opening splash page. To be fair, it's no more flowery than Chris Clermont or Stan Lee. And thankfully, he gets it out of the way pretty quickly. After he's, he's this burst of flowery captioning, it kind of settles down a bit. Maybe, maybe the flowery captioning made the earthquake want to stop. <laughs> oh, God, stop describing me. <laughs> Please stop. Please, says the earthquake. Please stop with the flowery 70s prose. I love the economical way Guy Gardner is dispatched. Within two pages, he's hospitalised. Hospitalised? Within two pages, he's hospitalised and just taken out of the picture. But where's his bowl cut? He's rocking quite a nice 70s wave, though. I mean, he's not. it's not long. Doesn't he get the bowl cut later? Like 70s her, and he's not got sideburns either. No. That was very disappointing to me. I don't know, I don't know when he gets the bowl cut. Is it not an ca- 80s thing? I'm not sure. Is it not kind of funny, though, to not take away from John Stewart that he only became Green Lantern because Guy Gardner got hospitalised? Oh, oh the first black Green Lantern. Yeah, but he's only Green Lantern because the other guy was hospitalised. Does that mean as well that when Guy Gardner gets better, John Stewart's not Green Lantern anymore? Yeah. Is that the implication? Is that is that how he became Green Lantern then? Yeah, this is John Stewart's first appearance. No, I mean Guy Gardner. Was that how he became it then? I don't know. What he's the reserve Green Lantern of Earth. Was he Green Lantern before or after he was Warrior? The Warrior was well after this, wasn't it? Green Lantern was Warrior was the nineties, wasn't it? Yeah, but did he become Green Lantern before or after that? Yeah, well, because he was Green Lantern in the Dematteis. He's Green Lantern in Crisis. Yeah, so. I presume he goes back to being a Green Lantern in this, and maybe the 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 core say, "Oh, John Stewart, you can stay being a Green Lantern. We've got plenty of those power rings. We just got them lying around. <laughs> it's <laughs> the most powerful weapon in the universe. We just have it lying around." Uh, John's introduction is actually quite good because it shows him to be a man of principles, just not a man of fashion. <laughs> just no, no, not a man of fashion. He's rocking a green neckerchief. A pink shirt, wide lapelled, open past his waist, and a green waistcoat and beige slacks. He certainly is a fashion template, isn't he? <laughs> in that uh, in that lovely ensemble. Who told him green goes with pink and brown? The Green Lanterns. <laughs> Other than it's the seventies and everything goes with brown. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the guys were just playing dominoes before the police harassed them. And he's prepared to stand up for them, which I quite liked. It was a good character trait. Anyone who's ever had to deal with being harassed by people who think they deserve your respect, be it simply for playing football or just hanging out, can relate to what John's doing here. Like that guy down the road with you and Adam. All you were doing was playing on your skateboards. And he was like, get off my land! And you're like, you're not on his land. How? I love his milk moustache. 
Yeah. John Stewart's got a milk moustache on the next page, which is very funny. Neil Adams draws a hell out of that panel. It's really good. I love also that Hal's teaching of John how to use the ring takes two pages. That'd be an entire issue nowadays, wouldn't it? Yeah. Teaching him how to use the Green Lantern ring. I did feel that these could have been fleshed clutcher out a little more and I did like that John decides he's not going to wear a mask because let's be honest that mask doesn't cover Jack does it yeah. anyone who knows Al John would recognise him in that so I, I always thought the Green Lantern masks were a little bit sillier than the no not quite as silly as Green Arrow's mask yeah. which in the comics is just two very very tiny pieces of black around his eyes that don't cover his beard that don't cover his beard <laughs> no that beard is completely unrecognisable apparently yeah. it makes him a completely different person it's like the Clark Kent stuff. Maybe you should only have the beard when he's green arrow. You should just paste it on. A fake beard. <laughs> a fake beard. <laughs> yeah, that, would, that would totally be a good disguise, wouldn't it? Clutch does come across as a very two-dimensional character. It would have been nice to have a little bit more background on him. As it is, John just attacks the senator when he first appears. We've only got his word yeah. on why. It would have been nice to flesh that out a little bit more. We later learn John's fully justified in his actions, but... Reading this from Hal's point of view, Hal's reticence is quite understandable, almost. I didn't like his, we're not judge, jury and executioner line in the face of obvious racism. Yeah. I would have thought Hal would have been a little bit more proactive about that. And they also, you know, the police. Yeah, but there's also the things, well, that's not the point of the story, is it? The point yeah. of the story is to show that these two men actually have more in common than they, they may think they do. So if Hal had instantly gone, all right, you're right, let's let's not get involved, <laughs> then the story would have been over. Yeah. So, all right, fair enough. Clutch's dialogue, for his part, after we finally get to meet him, is pretty sickening. And I did, however, like that Hal pointed out it's the price for freedom of speech. People are allowed to espouse their opinions, even if they're quite obvious idiots like this guy. People are allowed to say things that you may not agree with. Yeah. But the whole point of freedom of speech is that you can reply to them and respond to what they are saying. Uh, it all gets wrapped up rather quickly as well. Did you not think? Yeah. It's like a couple of... It's, they've spent a substantial amount of this story, and it is only a 13-page story, setting up John, setting up that he's a Green Lantern, they've got to get rid of Guy Gardner and explain where he's gone. So by the time the actual story kicks in, you're on page 10, really, aren't you? before the story itself kicks in. Uh, O'Neill and Adams are at their best in this tale, really, of prejudice from both sides. Whilst Senator Clutcher is painted in broad strokes and is a very two-dimensional cardboard cutout of a character, Hal and John are portrayed as prejudiced in their own way. Upon first meeting John, Hal judges the man by where he lives in the ghetto and his actions he's seen in confrontation with the police. It's not made clear how much of the confrontation Hal is witness to. We in the reading audience are in no doubt that the elder policeman was harassing the black couple on the street. But Hal's dismissal of John is nicely played, especially when the garden points out that Hal has been a bigot. Another nice touch in this scene is that the copper with the elderly man, also Caucasian, wants no part of his partner's bigotry. O'Neill does a good job of portraying both sides of the argument. For his side, John calls Hal Whitey and implies that he too is bigoted towards Hal, which again is in the spirit of playing both sides. O'Neill has Hal point this out to John, an uncomfortable truth that both men don't want to acknowledge. 
It's disappointing that Clutcher is such a disappointment, and with a larger page count, he would no doubt have been fleshed out. He's portrayed as an utter scumbag, and there is none of the nuance or subtlety O'Neill has brought to the characterisation of Hal or John present in the character of Clutcher. What is excellent about this issue is the race angle is handled very sensitively for a comic of this era. I mentioned above that O'Neill could be clunky in his dialogue at this time, but this story is neither clunky nor heavy-handed. Both sides are portrayed just right, and both men learn something by the end of the story, but not in a, see Timmy, what we learned this week, simplistic way. It's a hugely influential tale. Not the first mainstream comic to tackle blind prejudice. Stan Lee had tackled this very issue in Amazing Spider-Man, but a pretty textbook way of handling it in a way that has the audiences believe what they are reading. Does it hold up? Magnificently. I, I was actually genuinely riveted to this. Whilst the actual plot is rather thin, it's only 13 pages, after all, O'Neill does a great job with the script. It's telling, to me anyway, that this story is a lot more even-handed without the presence of Oliver Queen. What did you think of it, Michael? Um, I liked it. Well, one of the things I, I, with it, though, is that John Stewart's a different character to the John Stewart that I've read recently. Well, I don't know if he's had a character development, but he felt like he was written differently. Well, he probably was. This is a very 70s take yeah. on John Stewart and Hal Jordan. I just found John Stewart too boring now. He's quite a dull character. Is he? I, don't, I can't remember the last... My only real experience of John Stewart is the, the, the Justice League cartoon, where he was fantastic. Yeah. He was great in that, and he's got a relationship going with Heart Girl, and, and in, there are many people who think that the Green Lantern movie's failure is because the general public thought John Stewart was Green Lantern. No, I don't. I don't think that was where the movie fails. <laughs> Do you know? Is that is that not where you think it falls <laughs> yeah. down? Well, one of the reasons for its failure. Yeah, that, I like the the little scheme that the the politician has though. Okay, I don't like it, but you know, it's a good story. Plot. What, that he's arranging a false assassination on himself? To create an uprising, yeah. To create a, a racial divide. I like uprising stories, yeah. Mm. Yeah, it was alright. Yeah, I, I thoroughly enjoyed that. I actually thought it was really good. I was, but I didn't remember it only being 13 pages. Yeah. That's what surprised me when I reread it for this. I, was, I thought this was a full 22 page story. So I was I was quite surprised by that. Finally tonight, a change of pace. We'll look at another great fad of the 70s, albeit one that wasn't really unique to that decade and hasn't really gone away. Our love of technology and if man and a machine could ever really exist in one being. Deathlock the Demolisher made his debut in Astonishing Tales 25 and was created by Rich Buckler with assist by Doug Mensch. He recently made his TV debut in Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. where he's played by actor J. August Richards, but in the comics he was a vastly different character. Originally conceived of as a novel, Buckler claims to have had the idea for Deathlock bouncing around in his head for at least three years prior to publication. However, interest in robotics and cyborgs was reaching a pop culture zenith. Westworld had opened in cinemas in 1973, and Yul Brynner's Killer Robot, a precursor to The Terminator, was wowing audiences. 
In literature, Martin Caden's 1972 sci-fi novel Cyborg had not only found itself finding success in its pioneering use of bionics as replacements for human limbs, it had also found itself adapted to the small screen as the Six Million Dollar Man in 1973. All these different projects happening simultaneously seem to suggest that they were not influenced by each other, rather this is another example of the pop culture zeitgeist influencing different creative people in similar ways. Now, I know what you're thinking, and you're right. Andrew, you're thinking, back in episode one, you said Deathlock hadn't made the cut. Well, yes, lovely listener, you are correct. But Deathlock was such a cool character when I was a kid, I think his stories were printed in Star Wars Weekly, that when casting around for a third choice for tonight, I wanted to take a more sci-fi bent. Deathlock is also a character that could be any nationality, which is something else that was appealing. Deathlock also blends a number of Marvel ideas together. Superhero, kind of, monsters with its Frankenstein vibe, and sci-fi with its cyborg element. The cover boasts that this is Marvel Phase 2, and within is the steel-smashing origin of the world's most offbeat superhero. Describing him as a superhero may be a loose definition of the term superhero. Yeah. But, you know, whatever. Deathlock is strapped to an X-shaped machine, but busting loose. Is he man or machine or monster? You can't know until you've read our first fearsome issue, runs the cover copy, presumably, to emphasise the beginning of a strip, despite this not being a number one. Buckler and Inca Klaus Janssen make a pretty decent cover team, and it's it's quite eye-catching in its own way, isn't it? Yeah. Is that all you have to say about the cover to Deathlock? Well... <laughs> It's not as cool as the splash page. No, the splash page is much cooler, which is Deathlock stood in the middle, legs akimbo, targeting whoever it is that he's after. Targeting Terra. Yes. Is that his name? Surname or first name? Uh, His first name is Target. (laughs) His surname's Terra. Objective, escape, mission, liquidation, speculation, success. The, the, the splash page is better than the cover. But see, the splash is page just, is just a white background. Yeah. Okay. Which you didn't like on the Green Lantern issue. I think he could have had that pose. I, I do like the little target terror in it. It's like his little Terminator vision. Yeah. Well, this this was incredibly influential on stuff like Terminator, wasn't it? Yeah. When we were reading it now. Like when he goes up and meets Guns N' Roses and, oh no, they're all wrecked. <laughs> Oh no, better not deal with Axel. He'll eat no, you no. alive. No, no, Axel Rose would be no match for the Terminator. Not now he's a porker. <laughs> no, he'd he, he eat him. <laughs> a Cold Night's Frenzy was conceived, plotted and drawn by Rich Buckler with script by Doug Mensch. It was coloured by G. Ween, lettered by Abe Kowecki and edited by Roy Thomas. Roy Thomas was busy in the 70s, wasn't he? Luther Manning, Colonel, a man barely alive. Project Alpha Mech will keep him alive. His brain preserved, declared dead. Manning will be better than he was before. They have the technology. They have the technology. (laughs) They can rebuild him. Under the supervision of Major Simon Stryker, Manning's military knowledge and supreme tactical know-how will live on in a body of tensile strength forged steel. With the exception of the portion of his brain that controls strategic awareness, Manning's consciousness will be planted into a robotic body. Relay circuits instead of a brain, a pneumatic lens where the eye used to be, a cyborg arm and legs giving him immense strength. Luther Manning will be better than he was before. Better, stronger, faster. He has an onboard tactical computer and weaponry at his disposal, a sophisticated laser pistol with a magnetic bayonet. But in the course of a mission, Deathlock rebelled. 
Luther Manning is starting to assert his control over the programming. Escaping strikers' clutches, Manning goes into the mercenary business to hopefully make enough money to pay for a transplant back into a human body. But Stryker learns of this and dupes Deathlock into killing the only men who can prevent Project Alpha Mech going national. An army of Deathlocks who will hunt Manning down. And Stryker knows this is feasible, for he too is a cyborg. I made it a bit more linear. Yeah. Did you notice? Because it's all over. Yeah, the, the actual story in the issue is it starts in media res and then it jumps all over the place. I like that about it. In explain- oh, yeah, in reading it in the comic, it was great. Yeah. But in terms of doing it as a synopsis, it would have been a nightmare, wouldn't yeah. it? And then we're back in the past, and now we're in the future, and now we're a bit further back in the past. Final crisis all over again. Yeah, so I basically streamlined the story. Lovely listener. If you want to read it properly, go and find it. And actually, this isn't available, is it? Is the it masterwork for this now yeah. is hard to get hold of and expensive. We've got this in another one of these Marvel first to 70s trades. So I don't know how easy it is to get hold of Deathlock at the moment until they republish it as a paperback. They probably will do with the TV show. I would have thought it would be coming soon. Yeah. And it may be well worth picking up. There is a running narrative conversation throughout the issue where Manning seems to have a schizophrenic conversation with his onboard computer. He would refer to this just as pewter. Yeah. For the most part, which he does in this issue. Buckler's layouts and panel grids were hugely influential on Frank Miller. Many of Miller's techniques, point of view shots, small repeated panels where a character falls or stumbles, and large panels broken up into smaller ones are all present here in Buckler's work. You notice that? Yeah. That it's, it's very Miller in its, its art construction. Yeah, especially the little pink ones where he's fallen over. Yeah, his point of view shots and the stuff. The ones at the bottom where he's walking down. Yeah, the bottom of page three, the middle of page two. It's very influential on Frank Miller. Yeah, I thought. I don't think Rich Buckler gets the credit that he really deserves for this. I always like Rich Buckler's stuff. I thought he was great. Uh, why do all military men in the Marvel Universe bear a startling resemblance to Thunderbolt Ross? Yeah, with a moustache. Replete with greying stash. <laughs> yeah. They do, don't they? They all look like Ross. There's never one who doesn't look like him. Maybe he clones himself. You think? Yeah. This is a clone of, uh, of General Thunderbolt Ross. That the way, future. he could get away with being <laughs> Red Hulk and not be Red Hulk. Uh, yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Uh, Striker mentions that this war that they are fighting has been raging since 1983. No time frame is given in this issue, but a later issue, I think, establishes it as 1990. Yeah. So this is one of those great science fiction stories that was set in the future. That is now the past. Yeah. I love stories like that. I think they're absolutely fantastic. Uh, Deathlock's look, sadly, is quite dated today. The images that adorned the Martin Cade novels would have been a much better look for him. But I suppose in trying to sell the strip, Buckler and Mench wanted him to look a bit more superhero-y. Yeah, I don't mind the, the Borg half-face. Yeah. And the fact that his face is all gnarly. It's the actual superhero trunk and tunic thing I don't think suits him I think it looks pretty cool it wouldn't work now no yeah maybe that's it maybe I'm more judging it on a, a today perspective well, they did a more modern take on it they brought the Deathlock back a couple they? of times haven't yeah. they and he's sometimes he's not even Luther Manning is he sometimes mm. he's, a, he's a different character completely the strip also bears a passing resemblance to Judge Dredd which would come later. Yeah. So it's not ripping Judge Dredd off. But the DNA is the same. 
Was Judge Dredd really later than that? Yeah, Judge Dredd was 76, 77. Right. So Judge Dredd was just after this. There's a lot of Kirby in that. There is a lot of Jack Kirby in it. There is a lot of Kirby tech in the story. I uh, this was difficult. I honestly, I really remember being a fan of, of these Deathlock stories when it was reprinted in Star Wars Weekly, but I actually found this to be a bit of a slog this time. It's It was very influential on other things and has been so heavily ripped off since then. You can't help but feel when you go back and read the original that it's quite derivative. And I don't actually like feeling like this because it's not this strip's fault that subsequent years have seen it be so heavily strip-mined. Mm. And for one thing, like Michael said, the Terminator owes an awful lot to this strip with its post-apocalyptic future that will be fought by machines. Granted, that all came from Harlan Ellison as well, but this did remind me more of the Terminator, but also of, of Days of Future Past, which also sets its story in a ravaged New York. Manning's transformation to Deathlock is not only very similar to the opening credits of The Six Million Dollar Man, but would be lifted verbatim for Paul Verhoeven's Robocop in 1987, as would aspects of the plot. The Star Trek adversary, the Borg, would likewise steal and then update Deathlock's look to the point where Deathlock, the original, now looks sadly quite dated in his appearance. Hmm. What do you think? I enjoyed it all around. I thought it was really cool. Good. Well, that's that's good, because that, when I read it when I was ten, yeah. I thought it was really cool. I didn't think the Deathlock bits were better than the rebuilding bits. Yeah, well, the or- they, they kind of just want to get rid of the origin as quickly as possible, because that's what comics were like back then. They didn't spend six issues telling you an origin story. Yeah. They got the origin out of the way, and then they moved forward, because that's obviously not the story, wanted, what the, the story they wanted to tell. It's not... This is not to say this is without merit. It isn't. It's a fun romp. Uh, the structure is a nice non-linear piece of comic storytelling. And the fact that Deathlock is a murderer is also tapping into the 70s zeitgeist of anti-heroes. But, but therein lies, for me, the problem with this first issue. Deathlock kills two people at the beginning of this story for his own gain. And there is no effort made in the narrative to show that he feels any remorse for this. In fact, he's reasserting himself over the programming is handled in quite a throwaway manner, whereas one would have thought Marvel would have ladled on the angst quite heavily, because that's what Marvel did. Buckler had a good idea here, but sadly the later rip-offs have made far more of an impact on popular culture than Deathlock did, so the sad thing is that the original looks like the dated one. Yeah. It's not awful or bad or unentertaining. It's like Michael said, it's a, it's a fun romp and a good read. And if they do republish the Marvel Masterworks in paperback to coincide with his appearances on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., I will be picking it up because I have such fond memories of reading it when I was a kid. Mm. And I don't want it to, having read that, I don't want it to be tarnished and go, oh, it wasn't that good, really. Yeah. I want it to be better. Yeah, I did love the plot twist, though, that the Colonel was a cyborg The Colonel was also a cyborg. <laughs> yes. Did you not see that coming? No, no. Did you not? Right. Okay, okay. So, see, that's what I mean, then. Maybe it's... I don't... Well, no, because you come from the same touchstone as me. You've seen the Borg and the Six Million Dollar Man yeah. and the Terminator and Robocop. So you're coming at it from the same angle that I am, that this has been ripped off so much 
the original now seems a little bit derivative. But I, yeah, but even though I knew it was the seventies, I didn't know it came before them. So that kind of taking it out of context helps it. Yeah. All right. Fair enough. Good. Well, we'll pick up the masterwork if it comes out in paperback, and we'll see what we think. Because it did, it had a finite run. Yeah. And I think it actually ended. I mean, it ended in such a way they could tell other Deathlock stories if they wanted to. Yeah. But I think this the the book lament stuff actually ended. Well, that's it for this week. Mm-hmm. Good, good choices this week. Which was your favourite? We always pick a favourite, don't we? Which was your favourite of the three? Um, Deathlock. You think? Yeah. I ultimately, I think I'd go with Deathlock as well. Despite what I said about it, I did still enjoy it. Yeah. And the Luke Cage one was stupid, pulpy fun, but it wasn't good. And it had aged a lot. And it had aged an awful lot, yeah. It, it may be influential in the introduction of Luke, yeah. but it's, it doesn't hold up. And the Green Lance and Green Arrow story with Jon Stewart was very good, but again, it was very much a product of the 70s, wasn't yeah. it? That's the story... You, the, the way that that story was told could only have been done in the 70s. Its strength was its hindrance. Yes, its, yeah. its strength was it was very much of its time. And of its time, it was a very good telling of that kind of story. Mm. But Deathlock held up better as a story. I think the only thing that held Deathlock back for me was the visual. It, yeah. Like I say, they'd made him look like the illustrations on Caden's cyborg novels, where essentially he's just a guy, but all his skin's peeled off. Right. to show all the inner workings that again they would rip off for the Terminator Yeah, if they'd kind of done that with Deathlock I think it would have held up better visually but the story was still good next time on an all new episode of Hey Kids Comics what are we doing next week oh we're doing Strange Stills 181 Warlock yeah well, Thousand Clowns I'm looking forward to what you think about that <laughs> uh, Commandy The Last Boy on Earth issue 1 Okay. and then we go all supernatural with Ghost Rider issue 1 so it's a nice mixed bag next week. Sci-fi cosmic stuff with Warlock. Sci-fi silliness with Commander. Although, to be fair, it's very good. Is it? Yeah, yeah, I liked it. I enjoyed it. And, uh, apes, yeah, it's pretty much. And supernatural shenanigans and chicanery with the Ghost Rider. <laughs> I wouldn't put Ghost Rider and shenanigans together. You may be when you've read it. <laughs> Let me just say, I've already read the comics that we're covering next week. Yeah. So, all right. Well, we hope you enjoyed that. I know we did. And I hope you will... Uh, Join us next week for another trip down the 70s. We're doing the Kevin Smith thing. Right. I'm Ming Chen. And, and I've fared out on me. My very expensive setup that I have here for recording the show. <laughs> we'll see you next week. Bye bye. Goodbye.
cynicism, the devil will find work for idle hands to do production. The music and sound clips used in the show are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for review and illustrative purposes only. And no infringement is intended, so don't send your phalanx of highly paid lawyers after us as we have no money. Certainly this show was not turned into a lucrative revenue stream as no money is made from this either, which vexes us. The opinions of Michael and Andrew expressed in the show are the opinions of Michael and Andrew and no one else. They own them, cherish them and look after them, but are probably not to be taken too seriously. New episodes drop every Thursday at twotruefreaks.com and Hey Kids Comics is a part of the Two True Freaks internet radio network and we can be emailed directly at heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. We can also be friended on Facebook by using Hey Kids, all one word as the first name, and Comics as the surname. We do hope you enjoyed this episode of Hey Kids Comics. Uh-huh.